Welcome to the Velocity Podcast. A study in monology. This is your grumpy uncle Peter. He will say words at you. Quora question. Could you beat a medieval army with one Apache helicopter, infinite ammunition, and infinite fuel? The answer, surprisingly, is no. Or actually, not surprisingly at all, if you take a moment to think about it. Uh, The problem is, if you ask this question to me, I don't know how to turn on an Apache helicopter. Like, I don't know if it's a, a button with a key fob that you keep with you like I have in my car. I assume there's some sort of pre-check sequence. Uh, Apache helicopters, I'm betting, are not actually that easy to turn on and or fly. So if you have an Apache helicopter, an infinite ammunition, an infinite fuel, you still need a pilot. And I'm pretty sure Apache helicopters have a two-man crew on the flight. So I think they have a pilot and a gunner. And I'm pretty sure they have a maintenance crew. So just the helicopter by itself, even though you have magical infinite ammunition and magical infinite fuel, you uh, don't have anyone to utilize it. The most important part of the Apache helicopter is probably the pilot and the crew. What would make more sense would be to repurpose the infinite ammunition and you could sell it to other people and then repurpose the fuel maybe even, and use that fuel to create a new society. And in that new society, you could become the dominant force probably economically in the world. Because you have infinite ammunition. All I have to do is wait for technology to get to the point where you actually could use that infinite ammunition. And honestly, you could do it peacefully by being the person in control of the infinite amount of fuel. The secondary thing, let's say you do have the pilot. So you've asked me, and I just happen to be an Apache pilot And uh, I have a twin who could also be the gunner who has the exact same skill set as me. One medieval army wouldn't be that hard to beat. So could you beat a medieval army with an Apache helicopter, infinite ammo and fuel? No, I could not. And probably neither could you, unless there are a significant number of Apache helicopter pilots who listen to this podcast. Core question. How should an employer show their employees that they care, and then in brackets, besides higher pay? So if I'm going to rewrite this question, what's a cheaper way to retain staff? The real problem here is that this is business. And business people uh, on the business side, management side, they always want to make emotions part of it, in part of their business transactions. But they want that to go one way. They want you to feel loyalty to the company. They actually don't want the company to feel any sort of obligation of loyalty to the employee. So if they need to cut you, they should be able to cut you because, you know, it's just business. But you, as a worker there, 
you should care about the company. You should be loyal to the company. So this is a very classic catch-22 management issue. Because if this is just business, then the only way to show that you care is more money. Because that's the only way you're really going to improve your employees' lives. So let's say you come up with free drinks in the staff room. It is cheaper than higher pay. But that, as an employee of your company, that doesn't actually improve my life at all. Yes, I might get addicted to caffeine of some sort. I might start getting diabetes later in life because I've had all these free drinks while I'm at work. But that actually doesn't improve my life and it doesn't really show you care. It shows that you're trying to impress upon me the idea that you care. But if you really cared, you would pay me more money. You would give me the soda money, which I could then use to improve my life. Now, the concern here is that if it goes far enough and I improve my life in some way, like I get more education, I learn more skills. Now, maybe... Maybe I become so valuable that I'm more valuable to another company. Now you have to pay me even more money to get me to stay. The thing that employees need to remember is that companies do not actually care about you. It is just business. And you should treat it the same way. So I, when I go to work, it's not like I'm uh, anti-business, anti-corporations. I think they serve their purpose, but I serve my purpose for them as a cog in the wheel. But the day my company stops paying me, is the same day I stop showing up. I don't have any sort of loyalty to the company that goes beyond that. You hear about big corporations and they have free food and they have free naps and you can come in and you can leave when you want. They have all these perks. But every one of those perks is designed to get you to stay at the office longer. They're not going to pay you more. Oh, well, you get free food so you don't have to go out for food so you can stay in the office longer. Oh, you can take a nap during the day so you can stay later at night. That's not for your benefit. That is wholly for the benefit of the company. And like even things like free drinks, that's to make you feel, hopefully, some sort of emotional obligation to the company. Well, they've given me this free stuff, so I should work harder. But that is, at the end of the day, irrelevant. You do your job. You should be doing your job the best you can. And that's actually where the employee often fails. Employees often want to coast by doing the absolute minimum and then feel like they should get treated really, really well. But a lot of employees who demand raises, they really don't deserve the raises. But then the company often doesn't give raises to the people who do. So here we start going in sort of a circle. How should an employer show their employees that they care? You should pay them a fair wage at first, and if they excel at their jobs, you should pay them more money, because this is business, and at the end of the day, this is all about money. The reason you pay them is for their performance. So if you care about the performance, you should pay them equitably for that effort. So I got a message about double standards. I've made a couple jokes about having a son and a daughter and the double standards that I inherently showed immediately. So the way I treat my son and the way I treat my daughter overall is quite equitable, but I feel more protective of my daughter. And people say that's a double standard and it's unfair and you shouldn't do that. But honestly, the joke answer is that I would put my daughter in a cage and the first boy who comes around the house, I'm just going to murder him straight up. And then my son can go out and do whatever he wants and he can stay out all night and everything like that. That is a joke. But the base of the joke, there is a kernel of truth. I am certainly more protective of my daughter 
than I am of my son. And I'm thinking that's probably going to continue on into life. And people would say that, you know, treating them differently is wrong. And I actually disagree. And the reason I disagree is because society as a whole treats boys and girls differently. And my job as a parent is to prepare and protect them from the real world. It has nothing to do with how I would like society to be. It has nothing to do with how I think people should behave. What I have to do is hope for the best and then prepare them for the worst. So I think in the case of women and young girls especially, society as a whole is very manipulative. And my daughter needs to be prepared for that. And as best I can, I need to protect her from that. Now, I hope that in the future, of course, the world changes, improves, and everything gets better, and everything's wonderful, and everyone's treated equally and fairly, and there's no more manipulation in the world. But realistically speaking, that is going to happen. So I need to prepare my kids. So until society as a whole starts treating men and women completely equitably, double standards are a necessity, and they have to be in place because you need to prepare your kids differently for the different challenges they're going to face being different people. So here's a very interesting question. Uh, it was sent to me by someone who listens to the podcast. They didn't want their name connected to this question, which already makes you a bit suspicious, but whatever. Uh, I'm quite happy to use your name or not use your name or whatever needs to be done. The question is, how do vampires get erections? As a secondary question, how can they produce babies? Vampires, let's do the first part first. Vampires have been sexualized throughout all the novels and stories that I've read of them. Vampires are sexy. Uh, and it has to do with the neck biting, I'm sure, more than anything else. And they drink your blood, and that's very intimate. And they're quite often shown as being hypnotic. They have sort of mental powers. They can hypnotize people. So that's sort of how you feel when you first fall in love with someone. And oftentimes when they show them sucking blood, they show it as almost being a pleasurable experience for the victim. This would then imply that there is a sexual element. There's actually a lot of sexual sexualization in the whole vampire mythos. But that would imply that the male vampire gets an erection. And... How does he do it? Because he's dead. Vampires are undead. Uh, they're cold and their hearts are not beating. So if their hearts are not beating, there is no blood flow. If there is no blood flow, then there is no erection for the male vampire, which means he is de facto unable to actually have any sort of intercourse. So since vampires are magical beings, the fact that they're moving around at all shows that there's something else going on. Because the fact that they're moving around without blood flow or a heartbeat means that their muscles are activated in a different way. Maybe they are consciously forcing blood into those spaces with some magical ability. And they could do the same for their member by forcing it to move the same way they're forcing all their other muscles to move. So I'm guessing at this point we're just talking about magic. So since magic makes their muscles move, it can make pretty much anything on their body move. So that's how they could create it. The question for me then is, do they actually feel sensation through their skin? Uh, do they 
receive sexual pleasure in the same way as humans. Because they seem to take a great deal of pleasure in the actual consumption of blood. That seems to give them actual pleasure. So sensibly speaking, perhaps they're not taking the same pleasure from actual sexual intercourse. That might be part of their manipulation of their victim, making them fall further in love with them, creating more of a bond so they can manipulate them further in the future. So can they produce babies? Again, my initial instinct would be to say no, because babies are produced by semen. And I'm assuming that the, again, since there's no blood flow, there's no normal human functions within the undead, if they're not producing any sort of semen, then they can't produce babies. I have not read the Twilight Saga. I watched the first movie because it was a phenomenon, and I didn't want to read the book. Uh, I thought, oh, I'll watch the movie so that I can understand what the big deal is. And I quickly realized that I was not the target demographic for this movie. But I did, being able to extrapolate my understanding of other people, see why this could appeal to someone else. It certainly was not me. Now, that story was 100% sexualized. I know later on that they produce a child, some kind of human-vampire hybrid. So in the Twilight series, but they changed a lot of the rules in Twilight because he can walk around in daylight and then they do the sparkly skin thing and then they they seem to have changed a lot of the rules just to whatever they need at the moment. So he is pure sexual energy. So if you're going off the Twilight story world universe, then yes, they can. And I'm assuming that's actually just, again, magic semen that he's produced uh, maybe through mental effort. But if you go to a movie like Let the Right One In, which follows all the traditional vampire rules, the vampire cannot enter a room without being invited in first. The vampire can't eat any food other than blood. And I think it was specifically human blood. So they followed a lot of the old rules. And I would bet within that universe, the vampires were unable to conceive. And that is why they had to get human familiars to sort of help them throughout the daytime and uh, avoid that sort of inherent loneliness with being essentially immortal. But yeah, the sexualization of vampires is interesting because sex is actually inherently connected with blood flow. And the one thing vampires don't have is blood flow, but they do have a lust for blood. So they've created some kind of tertiary link between blood and vampires and sexualization. Realistically speaking, if you follow the more traditional rules of the vampire, an undead being should not be able to get an erection and therefore should not be able to have intercourse in the traditional sense and certainly should not be able to produce babies. Which makes me then think that the use of the term vampire for those things in Twilight is a bit of a misnomer. But of course, if that's one of the things they said in that series was, you know, the things you've learned about vampires from books and stories and stuff, are all not true. They're just bastardizations of the actual existence of vampires. But of course, if we want to be really strict, vampires aren't real. So the answer then is no, they can't. Because their erections wouldn't be real either. Okay, so I have mentioned a few times on the podcast that I have tattoos. Uh, I've mentioned it on Ninja News Japan multiple times because it's come up as an issue. Japan having tattoos equals being a bad person. So it causes problems for people who have tattoos and things they want to do. 
I have a tattoo on my back. It's on my lower back. Uh, and there's two issues with it. One, it's in Latin. And two, it's on my lower back. Now, it's not a tramp stamp. I got the tattoo before tramp stamps were a thing. But it is literally one step away from a tramp stamp, which now when people see it, they kind of try to make jokes. People try to make fun of me a lot. I've noticed that. And that's probably because I make fun of a lot of stuff. And I often end up making fun of other people. Uh, But I do get people who any opportunity they can, they come at me. And honestly, I'm okay with that. Often when they do make fun of me, uh, the problem is it's not that funny. But my back tattoo has consistently been fodder for people who've seen it. It's on my lower left quadrant of my back. Uh, It does not go across my whole above butt area like a tramp stamp would, uh, which is the only saving grace. Because it was about four years after I got this tattoo that tramp stamps became a thing. And I remember seeing the first set of tramp stamps that were sort of uh, being popularized in magazines, on TV and stuff like that, and going, oh, oh no. It's like one step away from the two guns going into your pants, pointing sort of at your groin area. Uh, That was popular with dudes for a little while. And then it started getting popular with girls. But those are all, again, trends. And I'm not a trend follower, but it is terrifying when a trend sort of creeps up on something you've already done and the trend is horrible and trashy and that's not really what you were going for when you got the tattoo so the placement of the tattoo came close to being a huge problem people do try to say it's a a tramp stamp Uh, luckily because it's again one half of my back and the lower part it isn't a tramp stamp So I just let the joke go. I'm actually fine with it because at least at the end of the day, I think if I did have writing all across the back, like an actual tramp stamp and people made that joke, I think I would be actually very hurt. I think I would have by this time probably gotten the tattoo removed. The second thing they try to make fun of, and it never works out, that it's in Latin. And of course, most people don't know enough Latin to make a joke. So they extrapolate what they can from what they do know and fail miserably. So that's something I often, I don't find it funny. I actually feel bad for the person making the joke because they clearly don't have enough knowledge to make the joke properly because what they're demonstrating is their own lack of knowledge, not how witty they are by taking a word and then, you know, manipulating it close to the thing they think it means. So it's a phrase that came from a poem by a poet named Catullus, and it's in Latin. It's just two words, because you can say a lot with two words in Latin. First one is homini. The second one is lupus. Now, the jokes are homini is like people try to make a homosexual joke. And again, it being almost a tramp stamp, uh, it gets pretty close to being accurate. But of course, those small failures will actually ruin the joke overall. And then look at lupus. And of course, there is a relatively famous disease called lupus. And then they start saying what they think it means. Uh, Quite often I won't tell people because I actually don't want to have this conversation. I got all my tattoos on areas that are very easily covered with a t-shirt so that I would never actually have to talk about my tattoos if I don't want to. But the actual phrase, what it actually means, because you might as well know now, homini is the plural for people or men. So it actually means all men, but actually in a more extrapolated way, it means all people. 
And lupus is the plural for wolf. So it means all wolves. So those two words put together as a phrase actually means within every person there is a wolf. And so the meaning is, you know, uh, you can push people so far and they'll fight back. Don't underestimate other people. It comes with a variety of meanings, but like the most shy, gentle person you know, there's a wolf in there. The person that seems very passive, you push them hard enough, there's a wolf in there and it will come out. So you should be considerate of other people. It's part of it. You can actually take a lot of different meanings and feelings from this thing and start putting them all together. So should you ever meet me, and for some reason I have my shirt off, if I do, you better look out, let me tell you right now. If we ever meet and I have my shirt off, you can ask about my back tattoo. Uh, But I'm not going to be impressed by your jokes. Because first of all, like most jokes that people have, they see something and they start making a joke. I have heard that joke before. And if you've listened to the podcast long enough, you know by this time I've formulated a response that's pretty insulting towards you. Because people sometimes will say, in a sarcastic way, what does that mean? And my actual response is going to be, it means you need to go back to school and study some Latin. The loss of the loss of podcast. The loss of podcast. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. Leave a text or voice question or comment at voicelink.fm slash podcast. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher. A cast or go to velocipeter.com slash podcast, sexy out homies. Now, who cares about that shit? That's the reality part. Stop. They could create the turgidity. I don't think that's a proper uh, descriptive term.